Dotnet Rocks episode 708 with guest Javal Lowy. Recorded live Thursday, October 6th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here for your .NET pleasure and all that goes along with it. Hey, Richard Campbell, what's up? I like .NET pleasure. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> you know why? Why? Because it's ribbed. That's why. Oh, .NET ribbed for your pleasure. <laughs> so what's new with you, man? Um, I've got nothing to complain about. It. I, I managed to get a few days in at Oktoberfest in Munich. I hate you. That's a lot of beer. Yeah. They serve it by the liter mugs. They're, it's big beer. Big, big beer in Munich. And you, you never see Germans happier than when they're drinking lots of beer in tents with bands that have tubas. And you seldom see them happy at all. So they, they, They're kind of a serious people, really. <laughs> they are serious people. <laughs> But not for two weeks in September, not so serious. <laughs> hey, let's jump into Better Know Framework. All right. Okay, so, you know, I've been doing some HTML5 tags, trying to educate people on them. Yes. And I want to talk about the figure tag. The figure tag. figure tag. It's okay. an image used as a figure in a document. And it also has a fig caption tag, and an element, uh, a fig caption element. To add a caption to the figure. So again, you know, it's all about little microformats to make uh, identifying pieces of a website, of information in a website. Uh, and that's exactly what this is a really good example of. And it's supported in all major browsers. But it is just an image tag. Well, it's an image tag, but it means this is a figure. Like I've got a document here and you've got, you know, figure one, figure two, figure A, figure B. It's an image but it's got a caption, and together it relates to the document. Right, so it has a relationship with the document. Yeah. This is back to that microformat thing you were talking about. Exactly. I like it. Yep. So who's talking to us, Richard? Well, grabbed a comment off of the website from show 696, which was when Billy Cravens talked to us about Cold Fusion. Remember that? Yeah. And nice little storm we got going there. The Cold Fusion guy sort of surfaced. But Steve Kennedy said some really interesting things here. Uh, just some thoughts, and maybe I don't understand this thoroughly, but I think you guys hit two important points early in the show. One, the lack of a single common framework for Cold Fusion, and two, Cold Fusion doesn't auto-wire things like event handlers. There's a huge benefit for ASP.developers because every .NET developer has to learn the same base framework, for the most part, being the .NET framework. When developers move from project to project or job to job, the base framework is still all the same. Unless you're buying third-party components, there's little to know religion wars when it comes to choosing components to use. You've got the same tried and true components that come with the base.net. I've only slightly peeked into the Java world, which also seems to have multiple frameworks like springs and stripes and struts and so on. What happens when a good Java programmer walks into a Java shop that uses a completely different framework? Do they have to relearn everything? I don't think so. I mean, frameworks are, are, are one part of it. Language is another part of it. Tooling is another part of it. We often have to relearn different things to get between these things. So I don't think it's that big of a deal. But let me finish what Steve's saying here. 
Also, I never realized that other programming languages don't auto-wire event handlers. Admittedly, this may be more of an issue with the IDE than the actual language, but I've done some smaller Android development using Java and Eclipse, and Eclipse allowed me to draw a button on their form. Their version of a form is called an activity for some reason. But I had to write all the boilerplate code for getting a handle on the button and clicking the button event. I really take this for granted using Visual Studio and .NET. Anyway, thanks for another awesome show. Keep it the good work. Live long and prosper. What do you think? Yeah. Well, there you go. There are differences in the language behaviors. And there's pluses. And what's interesting here is this idea of what is the framework taking care of in the terms of like event wiring versus what the tooling will take care of. Because if it automatically generates the plumbing for it, who cares? Same difference. Right. So, yeah, I don't see. I, it's interesting to know the differences, but also to recognize that there's compensations for all of them. You know, the biggest thing I got out of the Cold Fusion show is a Cold Fusion's not dead. It's right. on version ten for crying out loud. And that you know, just because it's fallen out of the limelight for our particular circle doesn't mean there's not a big group of people that are very successful with it. I've also learned it's one word. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still trying to live that down, are you? Not two. There you go. As originally published. So, Steve, thanks so much for your comment on the website. And you can make a comment as well on .netrocks.com, and we will send you a mug. And this is going to be a very special show because our good old friend, Javal Lowy, is back. He is the founder of iDesign and a seasoned software architect specializing in system architecture and large applications design. And uh, he's a, an RD, a, a world-renowned speaker and uh, shit disturber. Juval Lowy, how are you, sir? Hello, guys. Good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. You always bring us uh, challenging ideas and uh, in ways that things can be improved. And uh, architecture has always been your thing, and, and it's sort of it's been gelling for you recently. Why don't you tell us about your ideas? Okay, so what I want to talk to you about is kind of like from a higher-level perspective than the picture tag um, we want to talk about literally the essence of the problem of software development today. And if you look at, at, at how things are developed today, there is a very clear dissonance between the theory in which, um, you know, process books and maybe even universities discuss how to best to do it end to end versus the reality in the trenches covered with blood and muck. Okay. It's literally a, a dissonance between those two worlds, right? Right. There's the ivory tower, the way things should be, and then there's the way things actually happen. Right. And, you know, normally we would always expect difference between in theory and in practice, right? But this is a bit beyond. I mean, this is like, you know, two distinct, uh, unrelated perspectives, right? And we have to ask ourselves, of course, why we have this, this gap, this dissonance, and... um Obviously, they can't both be right. So obviously, one of them is wrong. But if one of them is wrong, maybe both of them are wrong, right? And if both of them are wrong, then what is right? Okay? So let, let's talk about how it should have been done in theory. And then let's discuss why it doesn't really work in practice and what we can do about it. And then I'm going to take it somewhere else entirely, and we're going to call for a new discipline altogether. Okay? That's basically the, <laughs> the subject of today's episode. So Okay. We all know that in theory you should have requirements fitting into your project. You do something because somebody wants it. You don't do it because it's interesting or because it's cool or because it's fun. You do it because somebody has a problem and you want to solve it using your software, right? And we also know in the industry that good requirements should be based on the required behavior, not required functionality, meaning 
don't say the system should do A. The requirement should specify how it should do A, because if it doesn't specify it, then it's open for interpretation, and then developers have their interpretation, which is always different from the customers, and then we have, you know, unhappy customers. And so in theory, you should be able to gather all your requirements, spec all of them in beautiful UML activity diagrams, which is one of the only two things UML actually is actually good for, mm-hmm. and you would absolutely capture the required behavior of the system, and then you would wave a magic wand, and you would have your architecture. And ideally, once you have your architecture and you've decomposed your system into services, you would show how instances of those services or objects or components, whatever the technology and methodology de jour is, interact together to satisfy the use cases. And if, of course, you can satisfy each use case using that interaction, then, of course, you have a good design, away you go to implementation, right? That's kind of like the classic view that hasn't changed since the middle of the 80s, more or less. Yeah, this is how software has been built. That's the way software in theory should have been built, yes. Now, even in theory, the reality is a bit more complex because we have two distinct worlds. We have the customer world and we have the software world. And there's literally this line between them. In the customer world, it's like this pipeline where we start with some kind of a marketing requirements to discuss what the customer wants. We typically can't even work with those requirements because they are either unclear or inconclusive or incomplete, mm-hmm. or because we're going to do things in stages or you know, in sprints, and we're not going to do this in this iteration, we're going to do the next. Or maybe there's things we're going to do that can never be traced back to the requirements because we are calling for things in infrastructure and architecture and security and connectivity and reuse, which you can never trace back to the requirements. There's always an act of derived requirement, which is, okay, these are the things we're actually going to do. Right. And like we discussed, ideally, those should be expressed in use cases. And expressing in use cases is not the job of the software developer or the architect. Miraculously, the customers or the product manager should hand to you those use cases. Ideally, of course. Now, all of that is separate from software. There is absolutely no relationship between the required behavior of the system and how you're going to implement it. In PHP or in .NET, it doesn't matter at all. Right. So in the software world, we have things like architecture and we have technologies. Now, whenever I'm doing design review for uh, for systems, there's always like you know this big picture. Here's the architecture, right? right? But if you think about it, when people have this big picture, here's the architecture. They may have layers, and each layer they may have services, but that's a very static view of the architecture. It doesn't tell the architect or the developer anything about how those components are supposed to interact at one time. And that interaction is part and parcel of your design. And remember, we talked before about interaction diagrams. In theory, you should have captured that required design aspect of your system, how those various building blocks interact together. Now, you may even want to capture the, the, the interfaces or the contracts, data contracts, behavior contracts, service contracts of those things. It's not kind of... Uh, design document that says the third parameter for the fourth method on the fourth uh, uh, service is an int. Now, what is actually coding? Coding is the act of marrying the dynamic aspect to the static aspect, because the static aspect describes the contract, the signatures, the parameters, uh, the layout, the static layout of the services and the components. The dynamic aspect describes how they're supposed to interact together. Coding is merely the act of putting one and two together, and that's basically code. That's why we like it so much. <laughs> and, and, and if, of course, if we do all of that, coding is, is, is actually almost, uh, uh, 
I wouldn't say negligible, but it should take about 20-30% of the overall duration because it's literally mechanical at that point if it's done this way. Now, that's the platonic view of software development. We have the software world, we have the customer world, and who stands on on this uh, uh, gap in between, right? And that person has evolved today to be the architect. We have the architect that interfaces with the product manager, understands what the requirements are, does the design, the interaction diagrams, hand it off to developers, and depending on the maturity of the team, you want to do a detailed design handoff or a top-level design handoff, and then developers off they go and do the coding, right? And that's kind of like the the academic, what you call, ivory tower view of the world. Yeah, in a perfect world, everybody would have an architect. And everybody would have an architect, and, and most importantly, the requirements wouldn't change. Oh, yeah. Because everything I described so far hinges on the fact or the premise that they give you the requirements, and then they don't change, and you have enough time to build everything according to what we just described. Oh, and plenty of money, too. And your requirements are correct, and you implemented them correctly. Yes. All of these things have to be met, and that's, of course, the difference between in theory and in practice. Because in practice, what do we know? In- and Greece didn't default on their debt. <laughs> Let's not get into that, although we can have a whole other episode about uh, that. <laughs> I bet. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. In reality, it never happens. Why? Because first of all, the customers never give you all the requirements. They never give you correct requirements. They may give you mutually exclusive requirements. You know, you can do A, but you cannot do B or the other way around. They may give you duplicates of requirements. Even the requirements that they give you, different customers may only have a different take on the required behavior. Even if all customers agree and all deployment sites want to have the same application at the same moment in time, over time they will change. And I guarantee you the rate of change of the requirements will be shorter than the time it will take you to iterate through this process and yield the application again. And so... The reality is that once the churn starts with the requirements, even organization and team that start with the best of intentions simply cannot execute it according to the clean model and end up with a variation of a code like hell or a death march and one or one of the things in between, right? Good, it's not. And they would come and say, there's no way we can do this idealistic model simply because requirements keeps changing. We, we are cursed. You see, everybody else, they don't have the curse. We have the curse. We are cursed, right? Oh, we have it. Yes, we, we have the disease. Everybody else, the requirements don't change. Right. And whenever people complain about that, I chuckle because that's what requirements do. They change. You always get that phone call when you're shopping for dinner. You know, can you pick up this instead of that? 
you know, change is what keeps all of us employed. If requirements would never change, none of us would have a job. It just has to be called requirement change. We're all employed, right? It is the way of life. It is the way of life. I mean, why do developers resent the one thing that keeps them gainfully employed? I mean, if it would me, I would, I would want even more change, right? Great. More work. Right. And so, you know, it, 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 and, 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 but developers would come back and say, but hold on a second. If they change, it hurts us. And I say, yes. It's just like when a guy goes to the doctor and says, Doc, it hurts when I do that, you know, and you lift your hand, right? What will the doctor say? Don't do that. Don't do that. So I have a very simple solution for this. <laughs> Don't design against the requirements. In fact, it's axiomatically true. Never design a system against the requirements because it's pointless. They will change. And they will change over time and they will change across customers. It's pointless to design against the requirements. Any attempt to do it will give you a code like hell death march. There's nothing you can do about it, okay? So what can you do instead? Instead, you should do a different kind of a design, something I call an extensible design. An extensible design is a design that's not designed to satisfy any use case in particular, any requirement in particular. The objective is to come up with a set of building blocks that by putting them in any particular way, you can satisfy any particular use case. The ones you have, the one you don't have, the one you're going to have in the future. Hmm. And the trick here is that, you know, Let's talk about a real-life system that has maybe 100, 200, 300 use cases. Now, 300 use cases is a huge number. And I guarantee you, if a system has 300 use cases and they give you 300 use cases in a document, a few are left out. They're not, there's no exactly 300, right? Mm. And nobody would have enough time to completely flush all 300. So you have sort of a 300 use case or 300 requirements. Now, the reality is that most of those use cases are actually variation of other use cases. It's the happy case, it's the sad case, it's the in-between case, okay? So most of those use cases are just variation of the others. So let's talk about what I call a core set of use cases. These are truly distinct, unique things the system needs to do. And it turns out in most business systems, there's a surprisingly limited set of truly distinct things the system needs to do. In fact, we've done it with hundreds of customers, and we now have a number, it's between three to six. If you look at any system, it does three to six truly unique things. And it's very simple to actually identify them. You would go to your system expert or your product manager or your analyst or whoever is supposed to own the requirements and say, if I'm allowing you just one requirement, just one thing the system should do, what would it be? Now they would say, what do you mean one? I said, look, it's just, you know, in theory, give me just one. And they will pick one. And you would say, okay, that's a core use case. Can you give me another one? At which point, they always give you a variation of the first because it's so important. So you say, no, 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 just give me a, a different one. By the time you're to the third, to the fourth, they'll be struggling to get you another one because most systems don't do that many distinct things. So what you're trying to do, Juval, is write one last piece of software. The one program to do it all. No, That's no, no, it. It, it, hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. One program. <laughs> no, 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 no. When I'm out. done with this, there will be no more coding. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Now, I'm what kidding. I'm saying is that there's going to be three or four or five core use cases per system. Of course, different systems are different. They're going to have different core use cases. But it's unlikely you will find, you know, interest calculation in a cappuccino machine software. You know, right. it's just not going to be there. Right? Right. That's what I'm saying. Now, the job of the architect is to identify the core set of building blocks that can satisfy the core set of use cases. Now, if you only have three or four or five core use cases, 
How many building blocks are you going to need to satisfy them? It's not going to be in the dozens. It's not going to be in the hundreds. There's a limited set of building blocks. And, you know, let's put a number to it. Six, ten, twelve. That's what we're talking about. That by putting them together, you satisfy the core use cases. Now, since all the other use cases are merely a variation of the core use cases, what we're talking about is simply a different interaction between the core building blocks you should already have. And that is what I call an extensible design. It's a design not designed to satisfy any use case in particular because it satisfies all of them. And that's how we design modular, extensible, maintainable, reusable systems. Well, you're really talking about highly configurable software, aren't you? The, the configurability of it is actually immaterial. It's the modularity that's important, right? It's a set of building blocks. By putting them together, I can satisfy the use cases. Now, is it, is it something that you as a developer put together, or do you push that to, to your business people? Ah, that we're getting there. Okay. So it's a job of the architect to identify the core set of building blocks. Right. Okay? And, and even if the architect doesn't understand, that's the mission in life. What are the core set of building blocks? How are they arranged in layers so that by putting them together in any particular way, you can satisfy any use case. The use cases you know about, use cases you don't know about, the use cases that will change tomorrow, it doesn't matter. So now what would happen is when use cases change, when requirements change, it doesn't imply a change to your decomposition, it simply is a change to your interaction. Because the same building blocks, they don't change. And so now, instead of fighting the change, you have contained the change. You have contained the change into merely the interaction between the building blocks, not the building of the building blocks themselves. Now, in any given system, the bulk of the effort in implementing the system is actually building the building blocks. It's not putting them together. And so by doing so, you don't fight a change. You embrace the change and enable to rapidly move as requirements change. And that's a practical, real-life way of solving this problem. However, there's a but. There's always a but, right? There's always a but. And it's usually big. <laughs> okay. The whole thing is hinges on the fact that you were given um, true use cases and you were able to identify the core set of building blocks. Right. Now, the reality is that most product managers, most system analysts, and so on, don't think their job is to give you fully specced in UML activity diagrams use cases. They think their job is to play golf with the customer, right? <laughs> well, in fact, their job is nothing but giving you those use cases. Nothing else matters, right, as far as you are the architect are concerned. Right. right. And so while in theory, the handoff between the customer domain and the software domain should have been in between use cases and uh, the dynamic aspect of the system, the reality is that most architects are forced to step up to the plate and factor those use cases themselves, right? And so they have to work directly against the requirements, and then they are the ones that milk out the use cases and identify the core use cases and such, which is complete nonsense because it's not the job of the architect to basically own requirements because he who owns the use cases owns the requirements. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. the architect, of course, we can't do it because of a number of reasons. First of all, owning requirements is a full-time job, and the architect already has a full-time job, typically two or three of them. And there's no way the architect can actually truly understand and distill the use cases because it requires, you know, playing off with customers and going to sites and doing visits and all of that. It's just not going to happen. And so we have this, this chasm between those two worlds. Now, once you realize, by the way, that in a good, solid architecture the building blocks have nothing to do with the requirements. You can never trace the requirements by looking at the building blocks because they weren't designed to satisfy a particular use case. 
And that coding is merely the act. I mean, I'm not talking about the code inside services or components. I'm talking about the code in between, what stitches it together. Mm-hmm. It's merely some glue that stitches it together. He's saying, well, if that is so simple, can we mechanize it? And that is exactly the promise of workflow engines. And indeed, over the last like dozen years, there were quite a few products for Microsoft and other vendors of trying to do it, right? They all tanked. They all suck. Yeah, I was going to say that. They pretty much all failed horribly. They, and they pretty much all failed horribly, even though it's a wonderful idea, which begs the question, why? So I'll tell you why. Because they assume a developer is in the loop. All those uh, tools fundamentally assume that a developer is going to be the one using the tool. Right. Why? Conceptually, it's wrong because developers shouldn't own requirements. I mean, just like we don't expect product managers to code, we shouldn't expect developers to own requirements. That's but right. But if you own, if you own the workflow, you own the requirement. Now, the reason this is so is because in order to spec the use cases and and do this entire journey for marketing requirements to derived requirements to use cases in in UML activity diagrams, that requires a very special person. That person to own this entire thing is to have a very keen right brain, left brain personality. It's somebody that can talk the talk with the customer and play golf and schmooze and wine and dine the customers. And at the same time, I, I understand concepts like abstractions and core set of activities and use cases and be technical enough to spec it. And these things typically don't go together. I mean, in the extreme, you're either a code-slinging troll living in the basement with your parents or you're playing golf. What'd you call me? Or you're playing golf with customers. I mean, it's one of those things, right? (laughs) And so the problem is that the the type of person that knows how to do these things is fairly limited, both in availability and in uh, uh, access even. And as a result, the tool vendors like Microsoft, they say, well, I mean, if I'm Microsoft, why would I want to develop a tool that's going to target for like five people on the planet, right? The five Leonardos that can actually do these things. They say, I'm not going to develop a tool for five people, right? And and so those vendors like Microsoft, they chose to develop a tool that targets the traditional audience, which is developers, right? As a result, if you look at the workflow engines, they all assume, you know, you have to talk to a host and fire events and handle exceptions and write code behind and call services and, and, and pass contracts and all sort of good that means nothing to customers, nothing to product managers. And so to use these tools, they have to be a developer. And as a result, they force the handoff between the, the customer domain and the, and the software domain to be upstream from the use cases. And by doing so, they set this tool to be a dead-on arrival to begin with, because even if the workflow engine didn't have any issues with the technology, stability, ease of use, learning curve, none of these things existed, they would still be the wrong tool. Huh. Huh. Yeah. Okay. And so, but... The fact that we don't have the tools doesn't mean the tools or the profession behind them is not a good idea. I mean, if I were to ask you how many programmers would we have without compilers, do you really have to have compilers to program? And the answer is no, but we would have a hell of a lot less programmers without compilers, right? The availability of tools like compilers and the paths behind them and the ID and so on makes makes something which is inherently a very complicated, time-consuming, intellectual, uh, contemplative task namely programming, something that mere mortals can do. You know, even Carl can do it, right? Ah. Ah. And so it's actually the same problem here, right? Today, to do this, to cover this entire spectrum, you need to have uh, uh, these unique skills and, and personality. But this is exactly the thing that tools are very, very good at bridging. 
And so let's start dreaming here and imagine that we have a tool that the closest thing we can talk about today is, is a workflow engine, but this is a workflow engine for my wife, for somebody who's completely non-technical but understand the business. And so what they would do is they would factor out the required behavior of the system in terms of logical activities, hand it over to an architect and say, build me this. And the architect would then come up with layers and services components to satisfy the individual activities. I mean, you can even embed such an engine in the end application and say, you know, to the admin, per customer, change the requirements, right? In, in, in the extreme case. Right. So now that we understand that this is where it's actually going, let's put some definition on it. And so what we need is three things. We need a software architect, where we already got those, but we need a, a new discipline, somebody I call the business architect. Now, the term the business architect is overloaded, much like the term architect is overloaded. Today, right. if you say business architect, it's kind of like the Gartner people, those who talk about you know, how the various division in the business should interact. That's kind of like the peer of the enterprise architect, because even the term architect is overloaded. We have enterprise architects, we have solution architects, right? Yep. And so today the term business architect means that guy up in the, in the high level, the peer to the enterprise architect. I'm talking about a solution level business architect. I'm talking about somebody that owns the requirements, looks at the entire spectrum of required behavior across all customers, across all deployment sites, across all points in time and can distill it into a set of logical activities which are fundamentally a limited set. You may have 300 use cases, but how many core activities you have? I don't know, 10, 20? It's a fraction. Abstracts all that away and says to the architect, here are the set of activities. I capture them already in this mystical tool that we do not have yet, okay? Build me this. And the architect, all he's now required to do is come up with a set of services, back-end layers and such that implement these activities. Now, the activities are stitched together using this mystical workflow, non-technical tool thing that we don't have, okay? Now, if you do it this way, you gain enormous agility in the entire process, starting from the requirements, ending up with working bits on target machines, because all the work uh, of, of building the system is done in a modular way. You have the layers, you have the, the services and such. Stitching them is done using a tool. It changes the requirement. It's actually not even involving technical people. And at that point, the demand for developers is drastically reduced because you don't need an army of ants trying to catch up with requirements because it's not a problem anymore. And that's historically exactly what happens with industrialization. Hmm. The post I described to you now is exactly what machines and better processes are designed to do. I mean, 150 years ago, we needed 97% of the people to work in the fields, right? And with machines, we can literally have 3% work in the fields fitting the other 97%, right? And so this is exactly the equivalent, but in software. It's like an industrial revolution, but in software, because now we would need a significantly less number of developers, but we would need a higher number of engineers, just like you can't have industrial revolution without mechanical engineers and quality control people and all the things that make sure the combines actually work in the fields, right? Because they don't work on its own, right? Right. And that means that we would see an acute demand for the two types I described to you right now, the, the software architect and this new category we can call the business architect or mm -hmm. in parentheses solution business architect because that's really what we're talking about. And indeed, you know, I was pleased to see uh, early on uh, uh, this year in June, a survey from InfoWorld about the six hottest new jobs in IT. And guess what was job number one? Which? Business architect. 
The business architect, exactly. It's something that I'm willing to bet the journalist who did the survey couldn't even spell, you know, I mean, because the term doesn't even exist. But, you know, let's go back 15 or 20 years ago. When you, if you were to corner your average team 15 years ago and say, who's your architect? They would say, Archie what? Right. The term doesn't exist. 15 years later, if you don't have an architect, um, yeah, right. Okay, um, and so the same thing is, is going to happen here, probably on a faster accelerated timescale because the relative complexity of applications and the, the rate of change is increasing, right? So I expect the solutions to come online actually faster. But that means that there is this uh, call for a whole new uh, line of tools, and of course, or the line of tools are going to augment a new profession we can call the business architect. And think about training all those product managers to think in terms of abstractions and using tools and model requirements and all of that, all of that is going to happen. And it's going to happen not because uh, um, it's, it's the right thing to do. It's going to happen because there's enormous uh, natural selection pressures to make it so, right? Uh, the army of ants outsourcing, offshoring strategy has run its course. This is it. Okay, this is as good as it's ever going to get, and it actually sucks. And so the first, um, either shops or tool vendors or universities, or whatever is going to come into being that's going to be able to actually do this, are simply going to survive and win. And in an economy that's worldwide is contracting, where nobody has extra budget to spare and such, if you can find a way of doing something at an order of magnitude or more, better and more efficient than anybody else, do you think you're going to survive or you're going to, or you're going to, even, you're going to prosper? Of course you're going to prosper. So I'm saying this is going to happen probably a lot sooner than what people actually think. So, but isn't the key tool this whole thing uh, a workflow engine that the business expert can use rather than the developer? Yes, but it's it's what that tool will do. It will not enable the process I describe. It will enable mere mortals to do it. Right. Right. Uh, right now, you know, uh, uh, over the last, um, I don't want to give an exact name, but let's say we say that in ten years I've met those guys twice. Okay. I mean, yeah. these people are there. I mean, literally, you need somebody who is a true renaissance man to do this today. And those people are there. But the availability of tools and companies are willing to employ it. I mean, because let's face it, how many, you know, jobs on monster.com have you seen? We need three business architects. How about zero, right? right? There's no incentive for those people to specialize in it because there's no demand for it. But I can tell you that, you know, in the early years, uh, uh, say, in, 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 Windows, before MFC, before Visual Basic, people who could program Windows were in incredibly well paid because they were so rare, right? And that, of course, triggered the demand for it. People went to it, and then the tool vendors woke up and did things like MFC and later on Visual Basic, right? So there is this uh, virtuous cycle that eventually will, will kick this thing start. It's not going to happen overnight, but these things eventually happen. The evolutionary pressures are absolutely there. And it's also, by the way, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful career path for um, both product managers and architects. In fact, I, I foresee architects who um, have had enough of slinging code and fighting with semicolons doing this transition if they have the personality traits and such, because today um, it, you would need more of that kind because the tools are not there. Uh, once the tools are there, you would see the cost of the, uh, and you would see the product managers and the analysts and the system experts taking that uh, jump. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Grape City. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Boss comes and says, sales are up this week. I'm taking everybody out to lunch. Awesome. Next day, uh, we're taking a loss. What happened? 
Well, you're a developer. You can create a report. So you go to your boss and say, okay, what should I report on? And they have no idea. Well, here's the good news. Active analysis from Grape City Power Tools empowers your boss, the money guys, so they can find the answers to their own questions. And the best part is, it's a control. Completely self-contained BI. Using a drag-and-drop interface, users can easily discover trends in the data, and more importantly, the deviations from those trends through its powerful graphical analysis capabilities. Development against the control is easy. All you have to do is provide the data. Active analysis will take care of the aggregation, grouping, filtering, and sorting for the user. Of course, it offers programmatic control of all these operations, too. So if you want more company lunches, do your boss a favor. Use active analysis. For a free evaluation, please go to gcpowertools.com slash analysis. And don't forget to thank Grape City for being a great sponsor of .NET Rocks. This isn't a new idea to have a business analyst or a business architect. It, it, you don't see them, but we've certainly been talking about them for years and years and years. So I don't really see it as a, as a new idea that we want to push more uh, responsibility to, the, to a business architect. But what, why do you think there has been so few of them, of you guys? Because you are one, are you not? Yes. So why do you think there are so few of you? Because it requires those two traits, a right, right brain and a left brain. Somebody who is both very technically capable of doing the abstraction and at the same time can talk budgets and prioritize requirements of customers and convince the customers, even though they don't want these features, they should pay for it. All those things, and negotiate, right? All those things typically don't reside between the two ears of the same person. Now, the, the, you can probably find one or the other, but this ability to be, I mean, use the term analyst, uh, historically, the instead of calling it a business architect, which is probably the better term, uh, people used to call it the technical analyst or the mystical technical analyst. But these people, you know, are, are incredibly rare. And coupled with the fact that most companies didn't employ the right process to employ them properly, you know, why would anybody want to rise up to the, uh, to the task? There's no incentive. So what's the solution then? So somebody is going to have to, or somebody, or probably more than one somebody is, is going to drive this. The tool vendors like Microsoft eventually are going to have to come up with a good tool that does that, okay? Uh, I don't know if you remember, but Microsoft at the time was working on a tool in Project Oslo that was canned. Yeah, and I was just thinking, this sounds like what Oslo was supposed to do. Yeah, that's right. But Oslo was canned. Um, um, there's, um, but Oslo lost its way too, don't you think? I mean, it wasn't canned because they didn't like it. It didn't do what it would, what the intention was. Right, but that's because of something else, which is almost all good inventions and development are incidental using serendipity. Very few things are like the Edison light bulb or the right airplane, right? I mean, my favorite saying is, what happened to the first guy who invented gunpowder? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. He blew up. He blew up. So we probably are using the second guy who was probably further away. Right? Yeah. There's a guy who was standing about a hundred yards away. Went, holy crap! I need some of that carefully. <laughs> That's right. And uh, and 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 what what happened to, to you know to agriculture? Do you think the cavemen were sitting there and planning the yearly seeds and saying, okay, let's do agriculture, or it was somebody you know just 
spitting things out of the cave and coming back a year later and remembering that. I mean, it was one of those things, right? Yeah, the first guy to discover fire wasn't around to tell anybody about it, right? That's right. What about penicillin, right? Uh, what about chrome? For that matter, most good inventions are, are incidental, right? They're, they're never intended to do this kind of a thing, right? And when you start doing this uh, audacious goal, we're going to change the world, Project Oslo, and, you know, you don't deliver in time and there's no skew behind it. And it's all motherhood and apple pie that you can't really sell. Then the executives get apprehensive and they cancel you, right? So it, 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 it's probably, I mean, I don't know exactly what was the dynamic there, but you know what I'm saying. I, I guess so. What, the call to action for, for the listeners is if you have a penchant toward this kind of uh, personality type and you think you can come up to speed enough on the technical aspects of it or on the you could be a business architect or on the flip side if you're technical but you know are almost have the social skills to 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 hang out on the golf course maybe that's where you should maybe take a public speaking class or something yes because because those who are on the borderline can definitely be trained what you have to have is the right attitude, but the skills can definitely be trained, yeah. right? Um, and it's true about everything, right? I mean, you don't have to, very few are truly geniuses, right? But you can, with enough dedication, you can become an expert in pretty much anything. Now, there is actually an interesting observation here, which is long term, there's going to be far less demand for programmers. And so, if you want to base your entire career on being a code slinger, that would not be wise. We've been predicting the death of the developer for a long time. Well, you know what? I don't think it's a death of the developer. I think it's a changing of the developer. As tools get higher and higher level, there's less of a need for the really low-level engineers. But, that's right. It, it's kind of like, you know, the Industrial Revolution didn't mean the, the death of the farmer. Right. It just did few of them, right? And so, but if, if, if you know, somebody is, is, say, you know, in the early stages of their careers, Specializing is either being a system architect or being a business architect is a far better career move than being a hardcore senior developer because the demand for developers will go down as the work gets commoditized and mechanized, and the demand for the system architect and the business architect is going to explode. Well, you said the right word is commoditized. I mean, Any time that you're in a business that is easily done by somebody else in a in a you know with a lower standard of living you're doomed cuz it's just a matter of it's just a matter of time before the customer is on to and gets the information they need to get it cheaper right and in this case it's not somebody else it's something else right yeah <laughs> Well, and we've already seen this as software development over and over again there's not a lot of people who can make a living writing tcpip stacks anymore no that's true or that's cryptography right. for that matter or frameworks <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know this. That stuff's true. been done. We're we're moving up a level. So, are you just describing yet another level to move up, Yuval? Move up and sideways. I mean, it is something that I actually want to take uh, our business, uh, the I design business, into. I mean, we've we've made our business in mentoring and guiding system architects. Uh, that's what what we do at I design. But now I realize that. To really make our customers prosper, we have to do the other side of the fence as well. We have to show them how to be and how to train and grow and groom business architects. It's going to be an essential part of success. Well, I mean, it, I, I would certainly like to see that tool, you know, that you, the mythical tool that you talk about that allows the, the composition and decomposition of complex systems that uh, a business analyst can, can do by themselves. Uh, that's certainly an interesting idea. Yep. 
well, I've got, the, I've got good ideas. <laughs> the, yeah, the, but you bring up the valid point of this is one of those tipping point kind of things where if that tool gets built fairly quickly, software starts to change to utilize it. And the way you build software is going to rapidly change. The number of people involved is going to change as well. That's right. Is this tool light switch? Uh, no, I think light switch is, is a vertically integrated application generator. Right. Um, it's still for developers. For the developers, yes, yes, yes. It has, definitely has its place, right? But that's not it. You need something higher, higher level, less codey. No code at all. I mean, literally, imagine somebody, imagine an, an HR manager at the office working, looking at how the hiring process is done, bringing up the tool and saying, no, I want them to actually approve the quote before they actually get the rec. And then you move the blocks. And you press enter, and then the entire workflow of how every manager is doing it has now changed in the ERP system. Isn't that sort of what Rational was trying to do? I mean, that was like, you know, dialog box configuration hell, though. Yeah, I mean, aren't we going down the same road there? Rational tried to do a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> well, part of it is, I mean, remember, the, the tool is only about a third of the problem. Um, the other, The other third is the process I described at the beginning. Because without this process, you're no better off. And the other part of it is uh, the person behind it, the business architect. And so you have to have all three ingredients. This is not going to work on its own. Well, and that's always the case, right? It's, it's going to be a bunch of different pieces that work together and, and folks just learn how to take advantage. That's one of the things I like about LightSwitch is it almost feels like VB back in the early 90s, mm. that it was just sort of a sudden jump in productivity. You could certainly say that there that the the VBA crowd, you know, is in the is a little bit closer to that business uh, business architect position because they're typically business people who got into scripting to help them do their things and then you know back their way into a, a language. I, I agree. They're probably they're probably better off than. Yeah, and I guess the question to ask is: Is it easier to teach a a, a programmer business or to teach a business person programming? Yes, I, that's probably what, just what I want to say. Now, the other thing to note is that personality-wise, you're correct, but complexity-wise, you're not. Systems that were built in VBA this way tend to be fairly simple. The systems we have to build today are insanely complex, and and that's why, you know... The- well, and there were some pretty insanely complex VBA apps out there, but they were unmaintainable. I think the real point you get to is be able to manage that complexity in a useful way. Yes, 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 of course, of course, of course. Oh, great. But I, I mean, and I don't know if this idea has come across yet, Yuval. Am I misreading this, this idea that rather than modeling the application, you model the business and the application naturally falls out of that? You could say that, yes. I mean, it's, it's an interesting idea. It's just very high level. Yeah. But, you know, we've, we've been doing it for more than 10 years now. I mean, that's how we design systems. Right. You never design against the requirements because they will change. So stop doing that. Yeah. You know, it's like going to the doctor. It, it hurts when I do that. Then stop doing that. Right. Well, you know, this should spawn uh, some interesting discussions on the website. So uh, we'd like to we'd like to see those comments. Yuval, uh, is there any resources or anything else that you want to point us to? Uh, there's a seminar I do called the Architects Masterclass, and it talks about what happens on the other side of the fence. Now, everything I show in the Architects Masterclass to architects is how to work in the context of this kind of a process, this kind of a model. And I tell them often, you know, we don't have this tool, we don't have the business analyst, the, the business architect. You're going to have to do this side of the fence too. But that's the, on, that, the fact that we don't have the tool or we don't have this doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it today. It just means it's harder. Right? Right. 
All right. Well, uh, I think that's where we'll leave it. Thanks a lot for uh, sharing your ideas with us. It's awesome. Pleasure. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. <laughs>